Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, and Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent. We also have a guest from AFMI, the Investment Banking Association, Michael Lever, who is head of Prudential Regulation there. And Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, has been talking to David Fanger, who's Senior Vice President at Moody's. This week, we'll be looking at potential delays in the latest international regulations from the so-called Basel Committee also at UK ring fencing plans and the UK banks struggling to keep pace. And finally, Ben McClanahan in the US talking to Moody's about the US bank credit markets and what the outlook is there. First, though, to the Basel Committee. Over the new year, Laura, there was a surprise cancellation of a key meeting, wasn't there? The kind of oversight body for the Basel Committee, which is called the GHOS, a kind of panel of central bank governors, heads of supervision around the world, which normally sign off on these proposals. They cancelled a meeting which was due to sign off on the so-called Basel IV rules. Why did that happen? Well, they cancelled the meeting mainly because they had hoped that they would be able to get an agreement between the US in particular and the European authorities about how to handle one of the key issues. And this is basically the amount of flexibility banks have when it comes to calculating how risky their loans are and how much capital there is. There's been a long-standing row about this. They failed to reach agreement before Christmas. They had hoped to have the final technical details sorted out by this meeting for January They didn't manage to reach agreement at technical level, so there was no point in having the meeting because there wasn't a proposal to effectively put before them to approve. And as you say, the knottiest issue is around how they assess or how they force banks to assess the credit risk, essentially, in their lending books, particularly this issue of putting a floor in place or a minimum level in place for how they calculate risk-weighted assets. Well, to explain a little bit more about that, I'm now joined by Michael Lever from AFMI. Michael, welcome. Thank you. I wondered if you could give us your gut reaction to this decision by the so-called GHOS, this group of central bank governors and heads of supervision around the world, to delay their meeting to look at Basel IV. Is it that they're going soft on things? Are we going to see a real watering down of these hardline proposals? No, I mean, I think a delay was clearly sensible because there was obviously difficulty in reaching agreement on one or two elements. I mean, notably the issue around the output floor, which defines the extent to which banks using internal models to calculate their capital requirements can come up with numbers which are lower than the standardized approach. I think in Santiago, they reached a figure of 75% of the standardized approach, below which banks using models couldn't go. Um, But that number doesn't seem to have found favour with sufficient members of the Bar Committee to uh, achieve a sign-off at the beginning of January at the GHOS meeting. 
This is all very technical stuff, but as you say, it's crucial to this proposal. Just to be clear, so this is essentially around mortgages is where this really matters. And I think there's also an issue on SME lending related to that. But if we take the example of this so-called output floor, that's essentially the the kind of minimum level which a risk-weighted asset could be calculated at in terms of the calculation that banks need to put into their balance sheet. And essentially, regulators are imposing this rather than allowing banks to calculate their own genuine risks on the basis of their portfolio of loans. That's absolutely correct. I mean, it is a minimum level of capital that the regulators are requiring banks to hold regardless of what their models give them as an answer. And in terms of the political row then that stems from this, if we understand things correctly, essentially the Americans are pushing hard for this high number. Allegedly, they're insisting on a seven being in front of it. As you say, 75% was the draft idea. But the Europeans, and of course European banks have a lot of mortgages on their balance sheets, whereas American banks tend not to, are very resistant to this idea. Germany's even threatened to walk away from Basel if this were pushed through. So that's where we are. How does it end up, do you think, in terms of a compromise? Are we going to see any change in that number? Does Trump's election in the US make any difference there? Or are we just going to see softening in other ways, maybe a longer timetable? Well, I think that the number will almost certainly come down. I mean, my betting is that it might still have a seven in front of it, but I think a floor of around 70% is the maximum that's likely to be finally agreed. And it may also be accompanied by other tweaks, for example, to the standardized measure which banks have to use to calculate the capital requirements. So there may be more than fiddling with the output floor because clearly if you adjust the standardized approach, you also make the proposal sort of less harsh for the European banks. And what about a delay? Well, I think the delay was the right thing to do. The next Baal meeting is uh, the beginning of March, the 1st and 2nd of March. GHOS meetings aren't actually publicly timetabled, but we would imagine there'd be one in the middle of March. And I think that clearly that is the most likely slot they're aiming for to get agreement It is, however, not entirely certain with the Trump administration that the U.S. will want to have a fresh look at this through the eyes of Trump's slightly more relaxed approach to regulation. And we could be surprised at the end of the day with a lower figure, but that's rather up in the air at the moment. I think, however, that an agreement will be struck probably around the middle of March and the number will come down, but not too much further. So the global system of banking regulation through the Basel Committee lives another day? Yes, I mean, I think this has clearly been the biggest struggle that Basel has had to get something across the line. And we've moved away from a post-crisis situation where that provided the necessary impetus to recapitalise banks to one where they're trying to fine-tune the framework of measurement rather than substantially increase the capital that banks are required to hold. However, it's clearly been a monumental struggle for them to get this across the line. And given that I would imagine there's only a dozen or so banks at the end of the day that will seem sort of meaningful increases in capital, one does wonder why they just didn't stick to existing arrangements which were already in place under the auspices of the ECB and also the EBA to correct the calibration for that handful of banks rather than trying to jump through hoops to get to an agreement, which has clearly been a struggle. Well, we'll see if they manage it. Michael Lever from AFME, thank you very much. 
Laura, if I could just come back to you for a final afterword on this whole topic of the Basel regulations. There's another leg to the so-called Basel IV rules, which is less contentious in some ways. The rules have already been established around an area called the Fundamental Review of the Trading Book. This is where banks are going to have to set aside more capital for their trading activities. But you've had some pretty alarming projections of how much it's costing the banks to put these new rules into force. Yeah, so these rules, they're not totally final yet, but they're certainly a lot further down the line than the rules we've just been talking about for the loans. So there are a couple of things to be finalised. They're due to come into effect in 2019. Now, there's been a study done by the Boston Consulting Group, not looking at the extra capital which banks will have to hold, which is going to be significant, but looking at the operational cost of doing all this. And they came up with some pretty alarming figures. I mean, they expect the biggest banks to have to spend about $200 million just to execute this. So this is basically money going into new staff, money going into new IT systems, money going into research reports into how this will affect them. And that's a very big figure. They expect banks collectively to hire about 2,000 people who will basically just be employed to work on these new models and on these new systems for dealing with risk in the trading book. So that's 200 million per institution. So that adds up to several billion dollars. It depends on what you include and what you take out. But also, it isn't a big figure in terms of the bank's total cost base. I mean, a big bank could have a cost base of $60 billion a year. But the thing about this is, this new estimate is far higher than the banks expected to spend. So a year ago, they expected to only spend up to about $130 billion. Now they expect to spend above $200 billion. So it's really heading in the wrong direction. And of course, it comes on top of a lot of other new costs in other regulatory areas. Let's move on to our second topic, because that is, for the UK banks at least, another regulatory area, ring fencing. Emma, you broke a story the other day on an interesting timetabling problem there, namely that the Bank of England is concerned that some of the big banks are falling behind with their schedule of work preparing for these rules to come into force. Yes, so the Bank of England has written to the senior management teams of all the big banks in the UK to essentially check in and see how their plans for ring fencing are coming along because the timetable now to implement it is quite short. Banks in the UK that have more than £25 billion worth of deposits must implement so-called ring fencing rules by 2019. And this essentially requires them to separate their retail business, which includes individual and business banking, away from riskier investment banking. And it's the UK's sort of main regulatory response to the financial crisis based on Sir John Vickers' proposals about four or five years ago to stop depositors having to help bail out the banks again in future. It is one of very many reforms that banks are having to implement around the same timetable. We're talking about 2019 for this. 2019 is obviously when Brexit would hit as well. As we heard a little earlier, elements of the Basel III slash Basel IV plans come into force in 2019 as well. It's a bit of a headache. So what evidence is there that the banks are falling behind? Well, at this stage, the Bank of England is really seeking to gain assurance that the banks are on track rather than finding evidence per se. So in that regard, what they're requesting banks to do is to ensure that they have internal or external auditors and teams who are able to prove how far along the track their plans are and that they are able to be implemented by 2019. Because I think a key concern for regulators is that they don't want to look like they're slacking in terms of pushing the banks to implement this. Because as you say, banks are facing a lot of other pressure from elsewhere where 
And there's some concern that they could be using that as a potential excuse to attempt to push back the 2019 ring fencing deadline. And the regulators really don't want to be pushing that back from what we understand. We've also heard that the Bank of England could be considering a potential section 166, which is where a skilled persons report or an independent review is imposed upon one of the banks to ensure that they are pushing ahead with their ring fencing plans. And ultimately, what this all boils down to is the banks have spent the past couple of years thrashing out their ring fencing plans, but it's now whether they can actually be implemented. And of course, one other aspect is not only is there a timetabling issue with Brexit, but Brexit potentially complicates the mechanics of ring fencing for some banks, at least. Exactly. One of the key issues, as you say, is the impact of Brexit and potential repercussions this could have just from an economic perspective, really. So as late as the end of last year, we saw Santander ostensibly because of Brexit, quite radically alter their plans. They decided to ditch their proposal to split the UK bank into two and instead create quite a wide ring fence for the bulk of their business to serve both individuals and SMEs with a view to then serving larger, more complicated or international corporates overseas if they wish, potentially through their London-based branch that feeds into Madrid. Okay, well, we'll keep on top of that story as it runs on, I'm sure. As with Brexit, there will be complications along the way. Let's move to our final segment. Since Donald Trump's election last November, there's been a real bounce in the stock market valuation of the big US banks. But what about bonds? What is the outlook for the credit market in banks' bonds? Well, Ben McClanahan has been talking to David Fanger, the senior vice president at Moody's, about that outlook. Well, thanks very much for joining me, David. The big US banks, since the surprise election of Donald Trump, have really been on a tear. Goldman Sachs up about 33%, and the rest of the big banks, B of A, Morgan Stanley, all the rest of them, following close behind. To what extent is this due to the prospect of a more gentle regulatory regime, do you think? As credit analysts, we aren't necessarily as focused on stock prices, but certainly the stock market has an indication of potentially a more positive view. Our credit outlook for these firms is stable. From our perspective, we do think the strengths of the post-crisis regulatory reforms have significantly improved their capital liquidity positions, and that's a very positive place for creditors. To the extent that the stock market is reacting to the post-election opportunities that these banks face, our view is it's still a little bit early to predict exactly what those may be. Certainly, lower tax rates could be positive for both bondholders and equity investors. Higher interest rates, definitely a positive for both shareholders and equity investors. To the extent that there is a uh, significant rollback of some of the post-crisis regulatory reforms, that's an area where perhaps bondholders and shareholders might disagree. Um, Our perspective would be that a significant rollback would be credit negative. And I know it's very early days, hard to say when half the cabinet's not yet been appointed, but do you anticipate that there will be a loosening of some of those controls that were imposed by Dodd-Frank? Certainly, I've been talking to lots of bank lobbyists, and they're sort of licking their lips at the prospect of plucking out provisions like the Volcker Rule. There will certainly be some loosening. We do anticipate some loosening. I think we're not anticipating that every single rule and every single law will remain forever. Indeed, frankly, having followed banks now for more than 25 years, there's a regulatory pendulum. There always has been. And most people who followed the banking system for a long time are familiar with that. Regulations get very tight in the aftermath of a crisis and then gradually ease up on banks. We certainly have always anticipated that that pendulum would swing. How far remains unclear. And stepping aside from the election, I know it's difficult at the moment, but um, what other threats do you see to the big investment banks that you focus on at Moody's? 
So I think what we see is while we have a stable outlook, we do see elevated tail risk, particularly around political uncertainty. And when I say political uncertainty, I'm not referring specifically necessarily to just uncertain banking regulation in the U.S. Actually, indeed, globally, we're seeing potential for less coordination around banking regulation to the extent that you know, these regulatory forms are less coordinated in the future, that would be problematic. To the extent that the global sentiment toward greater protectionism really takes hold, that could be negative for the economies of many countries globally, and could also lead to potentially more adverse market reactions, market shocks. And the issue with these large firms that have significant capital markets activities is they're heavily dependent upon customer sentiment, investor right. sentiment, to drive trading volumes. That's what Lloyd Blankfein keeps saying at Goldman Sachs, right? Volumes it's, it's a confidence are critical. Stock. And confidence is critical. And it's very interesting. Many of these firms talk about good volatility versus bad yeah. volatility. And so uh, good volatility basically just means something that moves prices around that can enhance bid-ask spreads mm-hmm. and even maybe stimulates your customers to trade more. Brexit was an example of that. It triggered a fair amount of reaction on the part of investors that were repositioning their portfolios in response to that development. But bad volatility is significant shocks that are so significant that they basically drive investors to the sidelines. Is that what we had in the first quarter last year? Certainly. Concerns about a significant economic slowdown, concerns about disruption led investors to basically stick to the sidelines. Mm -hmm. And so the first quarter of the year is usually the strongest quarter for many capital markets firms because that's when institutional investors deploy their assets for the year, their new investment strategies, they implement them. And the first quarter of 2016 was a very weak quarter compared to most first quarters because of that response. So the fourth quarter earnings season is just around the corner for the big US banks. And I think almost all of them will be short of their full year profit targets for return on equity in 2016 and 2017. I know Moody's is more concerned with the debt side of things, but is this a significant threat, the fact that the banks cannot make a return sufficient for shareholders? We do think this remains the key challenge for the banks. Profitability returns post-crisis have definitely not met many management's targets, even though those targets have been lowered. And while return equity is not a creditor metric per se, we believe that these firms need to generate returns that meet their cost of capital. To the extent they can't, their shareholders will punish them, and indeed they will be forced to take more extreme actions. Mm-hmm. Those could be restructurings, those could be increased risk-taking, and that certainly could be negative for creditors. So indirectly, it's certainly a metric that we monitor. The fourth quarter is probably going to turn out, you know, at least anecdotally we're hearing, will, will be a stronger quarter than fourth quarter of 15. Fourth quarter is typically the seasonally weakest quarter of the year because of seasonal patterns. Mm-hmm. But the real challenge is still that first quarter was so weak that the full year results are, as you pointed out, still going to be a challenge. And does that mean that the banks will have started taking too much risk in the way that they lend? Interestingly, in the capital markets activities, we see risk-taking remaining relatively subdued. Okay. But you do highlight you know, something we've observed, not just at the largest banks, but at most of the banks that we rate, some increasing competition in lending. This has been building for several years mm-hmm. now. The areas that we particularly have noticed, focused on, is uh, commercial lending, auto lending, and commercial real estate lending. Yeah. And all three of those areas we've seen, and the regulators have indeed reported deteriorating underwriting standards, which gradually we think could pose greater risk for these firms when and if the economy turns. Are these serious threats to these banks' stability? Is there anything like the mortgage crisis? 
these aren't as large in terms of an asset class necessarily that the mortgage market was, certainly pre-crisis. And we don't think that this represents the kind of deterioration of underwriting standards that was occurring within the mortgage market pre-crisis. But certainly when these firms are already facing profit challenges, increased credit costs are not going to make that easier. So David, finally, as you survey the landscape in 2017, are you a buyer or a seller of the bank's debt? Well, that's not something we do, so I really can't comment one way or the other. As I said, we have a stable outlook, and we do believe that many of the regulatory reforms that were implemented post-crisis are supportive for creditors. We do expect some modest improvements in profitability. Higher interest rates definitely going to be a positive development for many banks. But the uncertainty and the tail risks still pose some challenges for these firms. And the fundamental profitability question hasn't gone away, has it? It is not. We do think it remains a key challenge. Thank you very much. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Laura and Emma here in the studio, our guest from AFME, Michael Lever, and Ben McClanahan, and his guest, David Fanger from Moody's. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Amy Keane. Until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.